Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory. I'm Brian Bala. I'm Joanne Freeman. And I'm Ed Ayers. Each week, Joanne, Ed, our colleague Nathan Connolly, and I, all historians, take a topic from the headlines and try to see how we got here. But periodically, we mix it up with what we call the first draft, where each of us brings something that's caught our eye from that week's news. That sounds like fun. Yeah, I think it's going to be fun. (laughs) This is what we got for you today. The ever-lengthening American commute. Uh, The data breach at Equifax and how uh, all of that credit information was stolen. And talk about the latest report on poverty and inequality in America. We're going to wrap up the show with footnotes. This is where one of us brings in something from the archives that we just can't let go of. Do the people in the archives know that? No, no. That's our our little secret, Ed. A confession of theft right there. Well, we're going to start with an article that caught my eye from the Washington Post. Uh And it's about, yet again, an increase in the amount of time we spend commuting to work. Now, it's not that much longer than last year. It's 12 seconds longer. (laughs) But when you look at how much time they're spending commuting overall, it really adds up. Roughly, we spend nine days a year commuting, just getting to work, getting back. I I thought it'd be really interesting to explore where this commuting thing comes from and just how recent it is. And, you know, Joanne, that's always a cue for you to wake up when we talk about going back to the past. (laughs) I knew it's coming to me. Where things began. Yeah, I'm going back to the beginning. Um, Well, I would say, you know, Brian, that that's partly true. Um, Obviously, if you are a land-owning Farmer in early America, work and home are pretty much the same thing. Um, And the same would hold true for a southern plantation owner or a northern lawyer, I suppose, working, uh, doing his legal practice wherever he is. But that's not as true for people who are lower down on the economic scale. So people who are, are really people working with their hands. Those people, I think, had to not necessarily leave their where they lived, but they had to meander around a little bit to put together jobs. So they weren't so much working from home. Well, it makes me think, too, about uh, the peddlers that would have been pretty common back in your time, right, too, Joanne? Well, that's true. That's true, going from town to town. Although um, a lot of the meandering was kind of local rather than long distance. But, Joanne, what about enslaved people? What, what about uh, women in general? Well, now, the question with women is an interesting one because they would have been working from home, but then that changes a little bit with the rise of manufacturing and industry because then you start to get sort of boarding house locations near these manufacturing centers and women are among the people working in these mills and factories. And although it doesn't necessarily sound charmingly fun to be working in those factories, it did allow women to leave the home and give them some degree of independence, bringing them into maybe an urban center and and moving them out of their family. So it, it was kind of a give and take. And these are very young women, too. So there would have been that sort of element mm-hmm. of it as well, uh, sort of a dormitory. As a matter of fact, that's what they were called, right, Joanne? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, Brian, you'd also ask about enslaved people. And there's a place where we assume that they really were fixed to the land. Of course, they were property, but 
that also meant that they could be rented out by their owners to other people. And so they might be rented out at considerable distance from the places they lived and, unfortunately, therefore, from their families. Uh, And they might do something like travel into the city to work at a tobacco factory, or they might be loaned uh, to another uh, farmer nearby. And would they do that on a daily basis, Ed? I always imagined them kind of just going, in essence, to live in the city for three months or whatever. Yeah, but the the, the loaning out that they could be going there for a while. So it's, it's not commuting, but if what we mean is moving yeah. to work— mm. I think that we kind of need to expand our understanding to realize that Americans have always moved to work. And we also mean separating work from the home in one way or another. And I always thought that was such a recent development, and you guys are really proving me wrong. Well, it turns out that even the word commute is older than we might think. When you think about it, that's a weird word to describe what it is that we're Yeah, I think of commuting someone's sentence. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, Which what, doesn't seem unrelated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it does feel like you're sentenced behind that wheel. Exactly. Exactly. But uh, commuting originally comes from actually commuting the value of a ticket because if you are commuting on a railroad, especially the early railroads from a more distant place, and you had to do it on a regular basis, therefore what we think of as commuting, that your ticket that would normally have been more expensive is actually exchanged, commuted, so that it costs less to make this transition. Cool. So and that's before kind the, of a volume discount. Yeah, exactly. But that's before <laughs> the Civil War. So that gives you some idea of in the major cities of the Northeast. In the 50 years after that, with the invention of the streetcar, yeah. every city in America would develop streetcar suburbs, uh, places where you could get on a streetcar in the morning and it would take you directly to your job, and then you could take it back in the in the evening, and presto changeo, you'd be living in the country. And then the streetcar suburbs transform into the automobile suburbs after World War II. And that strikes me, isn't it, Brian, when this commuting as we think of it today really takes off? It does, Ed. Uh, and there are almost no boundaries because, of course, roads can be built anywhere. It and is they a, certainly were. And they were. <laughs> and it's important to say that this is the product of a massive federal investment. Uh, in, Why did they do that? The official answer, in part, was military preparedness. Right. The interstate and, highway the, the system. The interstate highway system. This would allow in a nuclear-aged world for us to move people out of cities if there were some kind of nuclear strike and and move military personnel. But the real reason was development. Americans crave that open space that you had talked about. There were incredible economic opportunities for home builders, for new communities, if people could get to that. And of course, the auto industry, uh, which promoted this whole Mm -hmm. idea of Americans being able to live anywhere they could afford. One of the funny things is that Americans ended up living very far from their jobs, in part because they couldn't afford to live close to them. As cities became financial centers, as cities became centers for professionals and industries were moved out or simply disappeared, uh, those cities became very desirable places to live, but they also became very expensive, at least in those desirable neighborhoods. So some people have to live hours away from where they work just to be able to afford the kind of house they want to live in. And they just decide they're going to pay the price and time of commuting to be able to get more house for less money. 
So now with so many of us dependent upon this that the numbers keep going up sort of by the will of no one, even though we can recognize the environmental and human cost of all this, do you think we're trapped into this commute for the indefinite future? No, and I think that we are really going to do less commuting because we have more technological means to not do that. Right. I know that even though it takes me a half hour to come into the studio here, that I have used a studio at a neighbor's house uh, and if not walked over, certainly taken a two-minute ride over rather than driving in a half an hour. And I've certainly uh, done my job of training graduate students uh, from a distance. And I I think increasingly we are going to look for ways that will save energy, uh, that will make for a more sustainable world, and will claw back some of our time that we spend sitting in the car, which is too bad for backstory because that's when I listen. Here's a question, though. So you're, you're talking telecommuting, people staying at home and that that's more convenient and um, environmentally better. But ironically, if we're complaining about being isolated and commuting now, aren't we just going to be isolated at home if we don't commute? I mean, aren't we then removing ourselves from a work community? It's a great point. And I do think that With the time that we claw back by not sitting in traffic jams on the way into D.C. or New York City, I hope people will put that time back into their local communities, put that time back into uh, a very local community called their family. You know, here's the paradox is that life in the countryside has never had as many of the advantages of urban life as it does to now. Exactly. You know, you could have almost everything that you would have in a city except people (laughs) Uh, uh, living. The ultimate advantage. So we thought for a while that everybody was going to have a new urbanism and people were going to return to the cities. But with the spread of, you know, telecommunication and all forms of delivery of everything that we used to get at stores, which were the main reason cities existed— I'm waiting for that drone to deliver my latest batch of books from Amazon. So one thing about it, so I think your question is a good one, Brian. What it reminds us is, is that the very definition of the relationship between work and home is constantly changing. Let's commute to our next topic. Joanne, what caught your attention this week? Okay, so what caught my attention actually was two things that happened very near each other and that seemed to be kind of involving the same problem. So number one thing was the hacking of Equifax, which is a consumer credit reporting agency that collects all kinds of data about us, our birth year, our credit card number, the way we use credit, our social security numbers and everything else. And that was hacked and stolen by who knows who. And the other thing that happened that felt related to me was the unveiling of the new iPhone, the iPhone 10, which has facial recognition software in it. And that felt to me also like some weird way in which I am being converted into data that will now be put on my phone. And apparently apps on our phone may have access to that same information about our faces. So it felt to me, I know, ooh. (laughs) And I guess all of this made me feel we're sort of big bundles of data. And it seems like we're continually giving away that data, sometimes for convenience. But I kind of wonder what the history of that is and, and what we make of the pros and cons of that. I think that its origins lie in a very good purpose, which was allowing people to borrow money from other people they did not know. 
I think the credit rating agencies that grew into Dunn and Bradstreet, um, which began well before the Civil War, uh, lay the foundations for this. And you think about it, it was just as intrusive as anything today because you'd have people who were licensed to go visit, talk to people about other people and say things. So what are their drinking habits? Do you see any uh, untoward behavior Regarding their wives, if you know what I mean, or you know, and, <laughs> and, and hard workers. Yeah, yeah. And what it all boils down to: Would you trust them with money? And, mm. and then that's transferred into a code of a letter and a number. And if your letter and number, which is a lot like the credit score today that Equifax would have, uh, if your number was not high enough, you would not be able to borrow money from New York or Boston or Philadelphia, and you would not be able to conduct business. Right. But I think the key thing that you said, Ed, is you don't know these people, right? I mean, networks of credit used to be based on kinship actual relationships with people you knew. And when you extend that to folks you don't know, then you start getting the kind of bundles of data metaphor that Joanne so aptly referred to. We have exactly the same thing happen on the work side of things. Exactly. Yeah. So this credit rating that begins in the private sphere is then picked up by the government uh, in the decennial census of 1850 and 1860. Lots of information is being listed about every individual who lives in the United States. And then the Civil War comes, and the federal government makes massive collections of data about all the millions of men who fight for the United States, everything from their eye color and height to their weight and birthplace. Then after the Civil War, statisticians start gathering all this to make giant compendia of the state of the nation. So hmm. across the second half of the 19th century, you see the deployment of all kinds of statistical measures, usually for the public good, to understand where it is we need to spend tax dollars or whatever. So I think you start seeing sort of the, the snowballing effect across the 19th century. Corporations, railroads start gathering all kinds of time information. So I think across the 19th century, Brian, we're gathering a lot. I'm guessing you don't stop in the 20th century? No, we certainly don't, Ed. And there's a long history of being concerned about giving up data. I know that when Franklin D. Roosevelt started the Social Security program and had to assign a number <gasps> to everybody. Exactly. Uh, there was a lot of concern, and Roosevelt himself was so concerned about so-called dog tags that would assign numbers to everybody that he tried to get the post office to do this. <laughs> and the wow. post office said, no way, no way. This is Social Security's job. But this scholar at Vanderbilt University, Sarah Igo, is working on a really interesting project that looks at how people actually reacted to Social Security numbers. And she found that people had the numbers tattooed, that there were all kinds of startup companies offering people gold-plated versions of their Social Security number. Wow. That actually, this number that some felt were dog tags and were going to steal our personalities or data. Actually, this gave people a face. This identified people as citizens. I also think there's there's maybe a generational component here too, right? In that perhaps younger <laughs> folks you are- say? <laughs> but I'm on the upper end too. I read an article about this over the course of the last week. And the headline of the article was something along the lines of why facial recognition is bad or why we're going to hate it. And I thought 
as I picked up that article, that what I was going to see was sort of along the lines of what I was talking about, that we're giving up information about ourselves and security. We're giving up security and who knows what people will do with that information. But what the article was actually about was we're going to hate facial recognition because it's going to take too long and our fingerprints are faster. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, I'm really not part of that generation. (laughs) Well, Joanne, Joanne, there are pundits who feel that a big an increasing part of our economy turns on us giving up data, and we should be paid for that, that we are owed compensation from Google, from Facebook, for really the profits they make from our data. Hmm. Because really, what is it that they are making or producing? Nothing. They're just handling our data and putting it in forms that other companies can use. Brian, we are working to provide you with products custom-tailored for you and your taste. There is no reason to be alarmed. There is no reason for us to share anything with you other than perhaps you would like this book. Have you read this one lately? So, you know, it sounds like part of what we're talking about here, guys, is some of this information we're giving away or we're at least volunteering away if we take a test. And some of this information is being taken regardless. And I I think, you know, going back to where we started, Equifax, this credit reporting agency, they're just taking data. Whereas the iPhone, we have a little bit of control over that. We can decide to, I suppose, opt out of that technology. So we're in part talking about a system that goes on despite us and in part talking about a system that we're feeding into. We'll continue this conversation in a moment, but first this message. Well, let's move to our third topic. Ed, I know what it is because I've looked into your iPhone, but why don't you describe it for us? So, Brian, I know this sounds exciting, but I want to talk about a report put out by the U.S. Census Bureau. Oh, I can't wait. (laughs) Well, it's on income and poverty, and it has really generated a lot of attention. Sure. People had all kinds of comments about it. And actually, I want to read you a few of the comments, and I want you to tell me which ones to believe. Okay. (laughs) Joanne, are you ready? I'm sorry. That's Equifax's job, Ed. (laughs) Okay. In a stark reminder of the damage done by the Great Recession and of the modest recovery that followed, the median American household only last year finally earned more than it did in 1999. Here's another one. Incomes are up, poverty is down, and job openings have hit a record high. But if the economy is so wonderful, why are so many Americans still feeling left behind? Here's another one. Poverty fell middle-class incomes rose, and the share of Americans without health coverage ticked down to a historical low last year. This trifecta of gains for poor and middle-income households, as well as the uninsured, shows that the seven-year expansion, along with the Affordable Care Act, has continued to lift the living standards of many American households. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody seems to draw a different message from these. So, I'm really curious what you folks think about all this. You know, if historians have been working on this really for decades, trying to figure out the balance of economic inequality, economic opportunity in America. And, you know, unlike economists, we're not really of the faith that you can reduce everything to a number because we have some really big distorting things here. The biggest one, of course, is the centrality of slavery to a large part of American history. It's hard to see how you can make sweeping judgments about mm-hmm. the course of inequality when you have people 
claiming to own other people. And the other big complicating factor is the place of women, of all ethnic backgrounds and races across all of this, in which people were just precluded from participation in the labor market or forced into the labor market, depending on their situation. So, Joanne, certainly when they wrote the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were talking about citizens who are generally property-holding white men. Were they concerned with these issues of inequality and opportunity? Certainly, they were thinking about opportunity, because one of the things that really distinguished early America from the old world, um, just as far as the economy was concerned, is that there was a lot more land that was available in early America. And so it was much easier for people to get their hands on some of that land. And if you owned land, then you had some way to be economically independent. And so that was something that seemed American and that that I think gave people a sense of opportunity at the time. And that also addresses Ed's caveats, right, Joanne, when we think about all those enslaved people who could not own land, and all those women who could not own land or at least exercise the right of full citizenship over it. Precisely. And in global perspective, land had been the hardest thing to get. And for there to be so much of it really did seem like America might be at the beginning of some new kind of society. The other thing about early society was that the, the extremes were not as extreme economically in America as they were in the old world. So, you know, in England, there was an entrenched aristocratic class, and there was a sort of landless, I suppose you could call it a peasant class. And although there were highs and lows in America and poor people and wealthy people, there was no entrenched aristocracy in that same way. And again, partly because of land, um, the lower end of the economic spectrum, too, wasn't quite as low or certainly not as permanently low. Kind of a truncated pyramid, right? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then in the 19th century, that geographic mobility uh, just accelerates as the United States expands more and more by uh, taking the lands of the American Indians and taking land from Mexico and so forth. So it seems like it's going to be a boundless uh, experience of enough land for all. Of course, at the same time, slavery continues to expand. And then something that looks more like England begins in the cities of the Northeast with industrialization. And You know, our national folklore has that the 19th century is the time of great social mobility, but the best indicator in the 19th century of how much social mobility you were going to have was the status of your father, that Hmm. there was not really nearly as much rags to riches as our little dime novels told us. But, and I think something else that feeds into the national story, which is a true story, is that many people have come from all over the world here as immigrants and found kinds of opportunity they could not find elsewhere. So how does this story unfold in the 20th century, Brian? I think the headline of the 20th century is one about the narrowing of the gap between the 1%, whether it's the elites back in the early republic or privileged men in small towns that were kind of the city fathers in the 19th century, and working people. Uh, There are several factors that happened in the 20th century that really closed that gap. One are major wars, uh, where a lot of those immigrants prove themselves as citizens and are really embraced by the nation. As regular African Americans moving from the South. Mm. African Americans moving from the South somewhat during World War I and then dramatically during World War II. Right. Uh, they're negative things. Uh, it's, it's not all about moving up for lower middle class people, it's 
moving down for really rich people, they got their mm. comeuppance during the Great Depression. And the Great Depression was a great leveler just because so many people did lose a lot of wealth. How about the New Deal? Did that take wealth away from them too? Not as much as we tend to think, but it did create a more even playing field, primarily by supporting unions and by helping people set aside money to save for their old age through Social Security. You know, the greatest narrowing of the gap between different classes in the 20th century is really between the old and the young. Hmm. So unions, uh, social security, and a vigorous redistributive income tax that also narrowed the gap God, between that the great. very— great. <laughs> so, 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 so when did that end? Roughly the middle of the 1970s, that's when the American tax system, uh, especially with the Reagan revolution, became less redistributive. And that's where the rhetoric of the market, reminiscent, as some would say, of the old Gilded Age, began to return to the American political economy. So that today, we're at the same place in terms of income inequality that we were in 1928, where... The top 1% owns roughly 25% of the nation's income. Everybody else shares the rest. So, Brian, I think that your point is good and maybe even better than you realize. Uh, no doubt. Because <laughs> <laughs> if we pull the camera back much farther and look at this in truly historical terms, uh, an economist named Robert Gordon uh, published a best-selling book a year or two ago. And what he pointed out was that throughout most of human history— the progress, material progress of the human population is very stagnant. But it really took off between 1870 and 1970. And he says that it's because of five innovations that can never be repeated and that had enormous consequence. Electricity, urban sanitation, chemicals and pharmaceuticals, the internal combustion engine, and modern communication. And what Gordon says, and I don't want to bum everybody out, but that <laughs> uh -oh. by 1970, the benefits to productivity, which is what drives up people's income, had all been realized. And since 1970, there's not really been, despite facial recognition on the iPhone 10, <laughs> a real boost to productivity through that has anything like the impact of these things. And I want to lay over that uh, a couple of, frankly, geopolitical changes that benefited America greatly. Coming out of World War II, the economies of both our enemies and our allies were wiped out. Uh, the amount of American trade compared to the rest of the world, and, and I think starting in the 1970s, the 1980s, that difference between the power of our economy and the economies of our friends and enemies was really narrowed uh, remarkably. Uh, you know, that's another factor that we're probably not going to return to, no matter how hard we try to make America great again. Hmm. And I think that's what a lot of these op-eds were about. How do we measure this? You know, if you measure in terms of longevity of the place of women in the workforce, of some degree of economic opportunity for people who had been excluded from it because of their race for generations, you know, there are some reasons to think that things are getting better. The quality of life 
judged by how long it lasts, at least it's better. And yet there's still a sense that uh, we are falling behind and maybe the, the greatest times are behind us, that we've reaped whatever rewards that, that we're going to get from the invention of industrial society, and now we're just going to live with the consequences of it in the form of global warming and, you know, the degradation of the environment. So uh, it sounds as if, Brian, you'd be saying that any short-term progress are kind of blips on a longer-term decline. Is that right? Ed, the refrain of one of my favorite jazz tunes is, compared to what? And I think it remains to be seen uh, what the younger generation is going to establish as their baseline. It's possible that they're going to be realists uh, and they're going to say, look, you know, we're not going to have this wild economic, unique economic growth that happened between 1945 and 1975 in the United States. But there are ways to have productive, meaningful, engaged lives without massive increases in the GDP. I like that answer. Joanne, you're our wise viewer across centuries. What do you think from the, the broadest perspective? Well, actually, what just popped into my head is sort of the opposite. I mean, it, it, it's the short perspective based on what mm -hmm. um, Brian just said. Uh -huh. And that is, in a sense, what you're talking about is the collapse of American exceptionalism, that we can no longer see ourselves as being an exceptional land of opportunity, and that maybe that part of what people are now factoring into how they understand where they might get in future. So what I hear both of you saying is that it may not be a bad thing to have a more realistic expectation of what economic growth can be in the future. We'll be back in a moment, but first, this message. Okay, it's time for our footnote, and I got to choose it this time. What I have is a conversation between Lyndon Johnson and Henry Joe Fowler, that's Johnson's Secretary of the Treasury, that took place in March of 1968. Take a listen. But you, I'm trying to give you the facts, though. I'm not master of nothing. I just haven't got it. And we cannot make this Congress do one damn thing that I know of. That conversation's a little hard to hear, so I'm just going to repeat one very short sentence. I'm not the master of nothing. That's Lyndon Johnson, who was known as the master of the Senate, hmm. right? Lyndon Johnson is basically saying, I tried to get a tax increase in 66, nothing, 67. I couldn't get four votes. They wouldn't even talk to me. I started out in January 66. I called them in my office, and they told me right then and there, that they would not give me four votes on this committee for a tax bill. 67 we recommended, and we shoved it every way we know. I've talked until I don't think I have a damn better weight anymore with anybody, and I never got one. Why is it so difficult for presidents to deal with Congress, and why are taxes so much a third rail that even a master of the Senate like Lyndon Johnson is stymied? Well, taxes are asking us to spend money on other people. I mean, when you go out and buy your iPhone, you're spending your money on the thing you want. But if you're paying into a tax pool, you're basically offering to Absolutely. contribute yep. to society. And while I think we've taken that for granted for a long time, I don't think people are taking that for granted now as a thing that they want to do. You know, part of the story seems to be that I as a consumer, I'm a better steward of my money than the right. government would be. Mm. Right. You'll notice the main language that's used to attack 
the idea of tax increases is the government would just waste it. And you may have heard this line. I remember working with my dad out. We were digging a hole, and he said, well, that's good enough for government work. (laughs) And I remember thinking, oh, I get it. The government doesn't do good work, and neither do we. But what that really means is that anything that's going through this public channel that Joanne's talking about— it's kind of coming to a lowest common denominator rather than actually generating all that money could if yeah. spent through private enterprise. I hate it when you get the answer right. <laughs> Just to underscore with a little evidence what you're saying, there are certain taxes that Americans have gotten behind. Right after World War II, during the Cold War, Americans didn't complain about very, very high tax rates because they got a sense that they were getting national security against a really frightening enemy, the Soviet Union, and then the People's Republic of China. So when Americans have a sense of what they're actually getting in a tangible way for their money, it's a little easier. But I would contend that the kinds of taxes that Americans embrace the most, I'm looking at you, Joanne, are Uh the taxes they don't see. Taxes Mm. like What funded the government for really the first half of our history? That's the tariff. I think that's very valid, that it's when you see a tax, and even in in those early years generally, right? It's when suddenly there's a tax where there wasn't one before or where a tax is more obvious. A stamp tax, for instance. Precisely. That's exactly what I was thinking about. Well, the other language that people use to attack taxes, which I think also spans American history, is that the taxes are going to other kinds of people, right? First, they're going to England, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Uh, Right. Back in the days of the stamp tax. But now the language is so coded. They're going to to northerners. There were people who hated the tariffs. It's mainly southerners who correctly felt those benefits were going to northern manufacturers. But nothing seems to be as toxic as the idea that certain categories of people are on the public dole, are getting Mm -hmm. unfair advantage from tax dollars. And that seems to be what's charged a lot of the debate over taxes ever since Ronald Reagan, maybe before then, Brian? Yep, definitely before. It's always been been an incredibly tough sell. And this is interesting how it ties into our preceding conversation about inequality and opportunity. Mm -hmm. People are willing to spend money if it seems to be creating opportunity like in the interstate highway system. But when it's seen as either going into the hands of the rich who don't deserve it or going into the hands of the poor who don't deserve it, that's when taxation seems to become especially toxic and charged. That's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Robin Blue, Anjali Bishosh, Sequoia Carrillo, Emma Gregg, Courtney Spagna, and Aaron Teeling. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Pottington Bear, and Jazar. Special thanks to Mark Silverstone, Associate Professor and Chair of the Presidential Recordings Program at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. And as always, thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Studios in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. We're a proud member of the Panoply Podcast Network. 
Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.